2: and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre. and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare... Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) (laughs) Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 12. I'm your host, Otis Gyri. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about quixotic cults, subterranean secrets, ominous eyes, and fearful friends. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror... Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. Ha <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author Joe Turner. In it, a man with a unique obsession takes things a bit too far in his research for answers. Without further ado, I present to you Nile. The first time I heard the legend of the mad hangman was from another inmate in our prison. He told me that there was a man with the ability to ward off death, that he was immortal. At first I thought it was a comforting fable for people who were about to be executed, but then I heard it from other places. His name was August Atherstone, a master executioner in Britain in the 1800s. He hanged a countless number of criminals, There were rumors that the only way August could get so effective at killing was that he performed unofficial executions, favors for prisons who quickly wanted to rid of an inmate. August said he had seen reflections of the afterlife in dead eyes so many times that death and life became one. He was death's messenger, and through this entered into a pact with death himself. Some people say he was afflicted with eternal life. Some say death rewarded him. He walks the earth now, waiting by the graves of his loved ones for death to finally come for him. But he never does. They say that some cults worship August as a god. They offer him sacrifices— "'so that they, too, can live forever. "'I tried to find them. "'I couldn't. "'That's why I ended up here. "'The legend of the mad hangman, "'pieced together by various letters, "'found in an abandoned apartment. "'Death himself is a mystery, "'the milestones to which we measure life. "'We wait for him like we await an old friend.' often attempting to delay his intervention, but never to defy him entirely. He was my obsession. I longed to see the world through death's gaze. By the time monotony and routine had become the foundations of my existence, I had learned that life held no discernible meaning. Death would come for me, and I would be a name carved into a stone, Long forgotten, oh, before high winds prevented graveyard visits, an overgrown wilderness masked the details of the dead of my colorless headstone. Through some divine inspiration, perhaps driven by the stale nothingness of reality, I unknowingly embarked upon a journey into the realms of the unreal. I began contacting murderers, serial killers, terrorists, cult-followers, cult leaders, mental patients, grave robbers, necrophiliacs, cannibals, any type of deranged mind I could locate the whereabouts of. Within a few months I had contacted notorious inmates, such as John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy. It seems that I had a natural talent for eliciting a response from such people. I would study their victimology and work backwards, often posing as a woman or a gay man or a devotee of their interpretation of art. On the night Ted wrote his last letter to me, he signed off with a Your Friend, and it was no coincidence that he was executed the following morning. I always found it humorous how the prospect of death reveals true intentions, even from someone as experienced in the art of death as Ted was. My interest in high-profile killers began to wane, as their stories were often elaborated to the point of fiction. My concern, then, moved on to lesser-known evil, the nameless occult killer haunting the back streets of small towns, the curious Satanist, eager to offer his new god-deity his first sacrifice. After all, if I was to unlock the secrets of death, would I not find it veiled in the unattainable depths of a morbid psyche? What became clear through my correspondence was that although serial killers were the most egotistical people alive, they held a certain secret admiration for each other's work, an admiration which existed only in the murderer's collective conscience— Never to be spoken of. It was not uncommon for me to play the part of the middleman, passing messages between psychopaths across the country. It was through this that I learnt the legend of the August Atherstone, the Mad Hangman, and his pack with death himself. Whenever a serial killer with occult connections was incarcerated, several murderers would try to contact him, and the subject of the Mad Hangman seldom arose. "'Occasionally I would be asked if I could contact certain people "'who I wasn't familiar with. "'It was rare that this happened, "'but one name in particular kept arising. "'Baron. "'I had uncovered no details regarding such person, "'but I was assured he existed. "'Robin Gecht informed me that Baron was an unstoppable, "'merciless killing machine driven by ritualistic delusions.' Rod Farrell was certain he had met Baron before and that he was somehow affiliated with the cult which worshipped the mad hangman. Months of searching for this mysterious inmate yielded no results until I received a letter from a cannibal in Britain. He's here. There's a cell in the basement we call the throne room because it's just a chair and nothing else. Some of the guards organize fights between inmates down there and a couple of guys claim to have seen an unknown prisoner in the throne room. I've overheard conversations between guards. He's painted the walls with his own blood. His mouth has been sewn shut. He wears a mask. He's been eating rats. I sometimes hear sounds coming from his cell. It isn't screaming or shouting, or any of the shit you usually hear in prisons at night. The noises coming from down there are not human. I know from experience that he won't be around long. I've heard that the guards have been told to get rid of him. They will unofficially execute him, August Atherstone style. If you want to see Baron, get here quick. Stephen G. Inmate, number 364, Monster Mansion. I made arrangements to travel to Wakefield, not hesitating to leave routine and monotony behind. Standing in front of the monster mansion itself, its gigantic stone walls cast a shadow on the sleepy town beneath. Cold January rain beat against the arched gates, which slowly opened to reveal a Gothic palace housing the most deranged criminals in England. I have a visit scheduled to see Stephen Griffiths, inmate number 364, I told the guard who escorted me to our allocated room. I'll be supervising your meeting with Mr. Griffiths, said the guard. He tied back his long hair with a hair band from his wrist and straightened his uniform. It's for your own safety and to make sure nothing is given or exchanged, Do you understand?' I agreed to the protocol and soon found myself sitting face to face with Stephen, a sociopathic cannibal lusting for infamy. His shackled hands rested in his lap, and his gaze was primarily focused on the table between us. We made small talk, such as how I was finding my stay in England, and what I did for work. Stephen's crimes did not interest me in the slightest, nor did his life's story. I'd begun regular correspondence with Stephen so that my motives for entering Wakefield Prison would not be questioned. I suspected Stephen knew my true agenda, but who is he to reject friendship? When I finally asked Stephen about what I needed to know, barons whereabouts, his eyes met mine for the first time. Before Stephen could speak, however, the prison guard promptly intervened. "'Visiting time's up,' he said, "'and ushered in another prison warden to escort Stephen back to his cell. "'I had anticipated that this would be the case "'and somehow needed to prolong my stay at the prison. "'The same guard forcefully ushered me out of the room and back to the courtyard. "'Please follow me, sir,' he said, "'walking in the opposite direction of the arched gates I entered from. "'The exit is this way.' "'I followed him across the empty courtyard,' my visibility reduced by standard-issue English weather. We passed between two stone pillars, bearing plaques honoring the architects who built Wakefield Prison. We passed through a picturesque scenic garden decorated with benches and rose bushes. Despite its beauty, the place seemed more barren with every step we took. We eventually arrived at a spiraling concrete staircase leading down seemingly to the bottom of the world, and it wasn't until then that I realized where I was being led. The guard was not leading me to the exit. He was leading me to where I wanted to go. His silence and blank stare told me all I needed to know. He was one of us, a follower of the macabre, a seeker of death. Not a word was spoken between me and the guard. But like serial killers before us, we upheld a mutual silent admiration. At the bottom of the staircase, the guard unlocked a steel security door which opened into a dimly lit corridor. Once the scent of damp stone had subsided, I followed him through a narrow tunnel, illuminated only by a single bulb in the distance. For the first time in my life, excitement coursed through my veins. It felt as though I was walking into the mouth of hell, and I didn't care if I made it out alive. This was the closest I had come to death's realm since I first contacted John Wayne Gacy, and those letters seemed like child's play in comparison. Death had visited here. This I was certain of. At the end of the corridor it stood, the throne room, in the flesh, just as Stephen had described in his letter, albeit with one minor difference. The cell-born old prisoner, It was simply an empty chair camouflaged against the grey stone wall behind. "'I'm sorry to disappoint,' said the guard, finally breaking the silence. "'But Baron is no longer kept here. He was coerced into a fight to the death with another inmate just yesterday.' if the rumors are to be believed. He's dead? I asked. Yes, or so I'm told. I didn't witness it myself, although I had bet a lot of money on Baron to win. Such a shame. Why the hell would you do that? I asked. There's no death penalty in England, you see. So we have to find ways of keeping the prison population down, The official report will say that a fight broke out, resulting in the death of an inmate. No one really bats an eyelid when a Krenamonel dies. Can you tell me something about him? I asked. Did you talk to him? Do you know about his crimes? I can't divulge any details. Besides, he didn't say much. His lips were always sealed. His possessions are still in his cell if you'd like to take a look. "'Just don't take anything.' "'The posthumous items adorning the floor of Baron's cell "'would be priceless to some of the deranged collectors "'I had come to know. "'A detailed sketch of a public execution "'with a sharply-dressed hangman holding a scythe, "'a masked man sitting atop a tombstone, two crows circling an empty grave. "'The only other item in the cell was a pack of playing cards,' missing every card but one. The card in particular was the Jack of Hearts, and something had been hastily scribbled on the back. 355 Churchfield Terrace, WF6-4QZ. An address. I slipped the card into my pocket when the guard was unaware. I thanked him for his time and asked him to show me the real exit. Grey skies set in overhead as I took shelter from the rain in the doorway of Wakefield Library. My taxi arrived, ten minutes late, and took me towards my next destination. "That's a ways away," the driver said. "Be but an hour." It was not wrong. The journey was made more treacherous by the sterility of the vast Wakefield countryside. Endless acres of woodland with only hints of blackened skies visible through impossibly high trees. My drop-off destination was what seemed to be in the middle of a marsh. No distinguishable path led the way, and all signs of urban life had long been depleted. Here? I asked. No, not here, dummy, the driver said. This is as far as I can go without driving into a bog. Keep walking that way, he pointed pointing into the black expanse of trees. Should come to a few houses eventually. Some right weirdos living around here. I followed his instructions as he drove away. I struggled my way across dead wildlife and some broken tree branches, eventually arriving at remote territory resembling a domestic residence. It was more of an abandoned farm, but the worn plaque on the broken gate told me that This was 3.35. Exactly what would I be greeted with, I was unsure. All I knew was that Baron had brought me here. Overgrown grass and weeds led a makeshift path to the front door of the house, which, despite knocking on for several minutes, no one answered. I edged around the side of the house, eventually stumbling upon a small window. A dim light flickered off the reflection of the glass, allowing me to make out a handful of details inside. A trophy cabinet. A white leather robe hanging from the wall. A painting of a tentacled eyeball. I knew you'd come, said a hushed voice behind me. I turned around, ready to run. I just needed to know you'd take the initiative. A familiar silhouette appeared from the shadows. Waist-length black hair no longer tied back. My apologies for not being honest with you earlier. I couldn't risk our conversation being overheard. I planted that address in Baron's cell. My address. I needed you to come here. This is your house? Correct, he said. I'll explain everything soon and I assure you you're in no danger. Would you follow me, please? The prison guard, or who at least I believe to be just a prison guard, led into his decayed farmhouse. Each room was more decrepit than the last, some of them barely held together by loose wooden panels. One of the rooms had a semblance of order, perhaps a living room, since lost to domestic neglect. A corridor led to what I assumed to be the room I had stared in from outside the house. The entranceway appeared different to the rest. It had been cared for. It boasted three steel padlocks and was made of corrugated iron. Very few people have ever stepped foot in this room, or even laid eyes on it. Please do not touch anything. The iron door took an age to swing open. Orange light from bare bulbs illuminated the rectangular room, showcasing wall-to-wall glass cabinets. Headless mannequins adorned the corners of the room, decorated in clothing from a previous age. Bizarre paintings of otherworldly demons hung in black frames. "'I read all of your letters,' the guard said. Your preoccupation with death goes beyond obsession, to the point where you're willing to travel blindly in the vain hope you might uncover something the rest of the world doesn't know. I walked up to the first glass cabinet, unsure where to look first. I know this, he continued, because I'm the same. Every item in this room has, at some point, passed through the hands of death himself. All the artwork, you see, is painted by murderers, serial killers, sometimes with their own blood. The offspring of demented creativity in the paintbrush. I own genuine torture devices used centuries ago in public executions. I'm in possession of the bones of the most deformed man to have ever lived, who was hanged from a tree as he was thought to be an adversary of God, I own occult artifacts, murder weapons, a piece of skin said to be torn from the devil himself. He walked towards a mannequin wearing a white mask and a frayed leather robe. In front of the mannequin stood an empty altar, a visual straight from the scene of occult sacrifice, albeit human elements replaced with lifeless ornaments. This is my collection, my obsession "'All I'm missing is the ultimate item.' "'His eyes glanced toward the empty altar "'and took a breath to indicate that the piece was not wholly complete, "'that something should be perched atop, "'some priceless tome or grimoire. "'Which is?' I asked. "'Please, step this way. I have a surprise for you.' "'A door camouflaged between two glass trophy cases,' became apparent when the guard placed his hand on its gold doorknob. He opened the door outward and proudly stepped back, as if revealing a master painting he had spent his life creating. It appeared to be a storage room, perhaps for items deemed not important enough for viewing privileges in the guard's personal museum of the dead, yet not. A sudden influx of shock blinded my rationality. How long I remained silent for, I will never know. But, between breaths, I eventually managed to ask the question, Who is that? I needed not to wait for his answer. A man bound with rope and chain sat in a chair unconscious. Any other time I would not have recognized him. His pale features and thin blonde hair, uncut for decades, resembled no one I had seen before. My realization came when the prisoner's head lulled to the side, revealing lips which had been somehow torn to pieces. His mouth had swelled to twice its normal size, and his lips pulsated with holes and fresh scars anew. I apologize for showing him to you in such horrific appearance, said the guard. His lips had been shut for years. I'm no surgeon. I couldn't help the trauma. For the first time, I felt that maybe I had come too close to death. Maybe this was all some kind of error, and death was not my reason or my obsession. Maybe something else entirely, literature... "'Painting, poetry. "'Maybe I could take solace from a medium "'where death was not immediate, "'not presented within touching distance inside a glass case. "'Please explain,' I said. "'I don't know if I want any part of this. "'Being in the inner circle of the prison system "'gives me access to the information I need.' The amount of inmates who pass through us without the public's knowledge is immense. From there I can locate the killers who interest me and be the first to get hold of their possessions. I convinced the courts to send Baron to Wakefield so that we could keep him hidden in the throne room. Most prisons are reluctant to take the high-profile inmates because it's not worth the hassle, so the courts were glad to send him to us. High profile, I asked. No one knows who he is. Because we managed to keep his whereabouts a secret. Regardless, our instructions were simple. Keep him hidden from public. Starve him to death and claim it was self-inflicted. But last week the instructions from the courts changed. Kill him immediately. The authorities had unearthed more of his victims and they found a word carved into their skins. Nile. Which means? This isn't the first case we've heard of this word being carved into victims' flesh. The problem is it's been occurring all over the country. Different victim types, different methods of body disposal. At first it was assumed to be some sort of underground trend. Maybe killers were somehow contacting each other, and this was their way of showing off. Thinking back through my correspondence with inmates, the word had made vague appearances in signs of of some of the lesser-known murderers, often those with connections to the occult or Satanism. I assumed it to be a farewell of those initiated into death's circle, It took me three days, but I finally got Baron to speak. Everyone who knows about him believes he's dead, so I could do what I wanted to him. The guard cast a maniacal glance toward Baron's shattered ankles. What little consequence was threatened as a result of his torture had manifested itself into violent interrogation. The guard did not strike me as psychotic, "'merely motivated by desperation at a rarer than rare opportunity. "'I needed to know about Nile, about what it meant, "'but what he told me was a lot more interesting. "'The guard leaned down and spoke to Baron, swaying head. "'Tell him what you told me, about the executioner.' "'A soft voice eventually began to speak, slowly.' as if narrating a story he had told a thousand times. His arms and legs still shackled, his body leaning forward as if independent from his thoughts. He recanted the tale of the mad hangman, applying details of the story lost during its telling through ages. Night turned to morning, and myth became reality. I left the guard's house in the early hours, coming ever closer to a chance meeting with death. The guard financed me considerably. Money was no object to him, or so it seemed. Or at the very least, he was willing to part with a generous sum of money for what he deemed the ultimate item. August documented everything he knew about death in his journal. A book unlocking the secrets of existence. It's in possession of a cult who worshipped August is God, and his book of death as their Bible, a cult I was a part of. They've used it to enter the realm of immortality. Baron was certain he knew the whereabouts of the book, and even claimed to have seen it himself. I followed his directions to the letter, taking the westbound train out of Redditch until it came to a stop in a tunnel where the tracks changed, I exited the train through a window and hid in the tunnel until I could safely move. I followed the tracks out into the ensuing greenery and into a backdoor town called Logslow. What windows were not whitewashed were boarded up, and a great tint illuminated every building and path. After asking multiple Logslow residents for directions and them denying its existence, I eventually found what Baron had assured me was August's eternal home, Logslow Cemetery. I waited until dusk and scaled the cemetery walls. The gigantic bolted gates showed no signs of allowing visitors. Nervous adrenaline propelled me into the waist-high grass from atop wall, barely checking for any dangers below me. The graveyard was a forgotten sanctuary, unspoiled by human hands for decades. The dead here were calm, almost certainly. I waded through grass and across frozen mud until I discovered the tombstone I was searching for, a blind angel atop a black headstone, the resting place of August, Atherstone's wife. In Barron's version of events, August came to this grave after madness had claimed him. Unable to cope with the grief of seeing his loved ones pass away, he attempted to dig up the remains of his deceased lover. When he failed, he simply sat in this graveyard waiting for death to take him. But death never came. I followed a dirt trail leading from the blind angel grave, to a nameless mausoleum paying an unsung tribute to the dead. The tomb leads below the graveyard, a private burial ground. It's where they buried the men that August hanged. What you are searching for is down there. I followed a spiraling path into blackness, keeping my body against the wall. The shuffling sounds I heard as I ventured further in I attributed to vermin and large insects. I continued down, trying not to avert my eyes toward the few creatures which grazed my neck and hands. Following along the left-hand wall all the way down, there is a gap when you think you've come to the end. Get through it. It's in that room. Take matches. There are torches along the walls you can light. I struggled through the gap barely wide enough to pass through a child I felt along the walls and came to the first lamp, which lit without issue. I welcomed the sudden influx of light, heat offering a secondary comfort. I lit as many torches as I could find and came to realize that the burial chamber I stood in was colossal, perhaps stretching the entire terrain of the graveyard above. Each lamp I lit exposed another until the whole room shone with radiant orange flame. It took me several minutes of stunned silence to overcome the beauty before me, the room's perfect architecture, its macabre decorations of bone and flesh, coffins lined the floors, carcasses laid draped across detached headstones, decomposed bodies hung from the walls in mimic execution a nightmarish tribute to the legend of the mad hangman. It became clear why the entrance to this room was a single rupture in stone. The room had been sealed off. This crypt was intended to be inaccessible, yet it had been breached. Sanctuary was not to be found here. A sense of intrusion befell me, and looking back I vaguely made out a silhouetted figure between two lamps, "'watching me from behind the ruptured entranceway. "'He did not move as I backed away. "'My senses told me to sprint, and I ran. "'Far back into the catacombs beyond the reach of the light. "'I trampled bones and tripped over corpses in my haste, "'but didn't want to slow down. "'Footsteps followed behind me, "'slow, innocuous footsteps, "'cementing my fear that somewhere in this crypt "'I would reach an end. "'I found a darkened corner and hid, "'perhaps awaiting my demise. "'Why now? "'Why, when I was so close to my answer to death's enigma? "'I waited, breathing in damp air and the scent of putrid decay. "'I waited hours, possibly days. "'I'll never know. "'My senses were rendered absent by fear and obscurity.' My body failed me. It wasn't until the unlit torch I leaned against brightened and I was greeted face to face with an entity, a lifeless figure devoid of shape, a deformed mass of hanging cloth, his face concealed with a white mask. He said nothing and stared at me with vacant eyes. He was not alone. Behind him... Replicas of the bizarre man appeared, all wearing identical robes and masks. I was terrified. The cultist held me against the cold stone floor. I protested my innocence. That Baron had sent me here. He had told me all about the Nile cult. He told me of their devotion to death and that August was their god. He told me that they kill as followers so that each cultist can live in a world between worlds, in death's realm. Sacrifices to their god meant eternal life, and eternal life meant immortality. My final vision was of an execution. The colossal burial chamber was my courtroom, and a horde of death-worshipping cultists, my jury. I pleaded with them to spare my life. At first, with declarations of my acquaintance with Baron. And secondly, that I was only there to review the book for a collector. Baron failed his initiation. He is to be removed from paradise. The speaker, August, the hangman himself, passing judgment from atop a magnificent throne of human heads, his voice low yet piercing, his features barely visible through withered skin. And the book, the most treasured item in existence. The book is what keeps people searching. The book is the whispers of the condemned and the children's fears embodied. This so-called book of death does not exist. A myth created to bring people like you to us. And with these words, consciousness faded. An afterlife called out to me. I awoke in the same crypt I had died. August's throne sat empty. The gallows on which I drew my last breath announced no successful execution. The chamber lay desolate, no cultists in sight. I searched the cavern, hoping to find something which could explain recent events. I made my way out of the unending burial chamber and back into the graveyard, and what I saw was not a world I recognized. At the center of the cemetery was a gallows, already with a condemned prisoner attached to a rope. A smartly dressed hangman dropped him to his death to the applause of a thousand strong audience baying for his blood. I watched his lifeless body be removed and the rope be cut up and passed to audience members, craving a token of death. I now realize why August informed me that the book was merely a myth. In life, yes, it exists to lure death-worshippers to the burial chamber of a living death-god. For sacrifice? Perhaps. But I now realize that I was not executed. I was initiated. I now see the world as I saw it before, but with remnants of death haunting every avenue. Along every road and on every street corner, murder victims replay their dying moments. Severed heads decorated barbed wire fences, and the streets are awash with the wreckages of fatal accidents and bloodshed. This place was not an afterlife, yet it was. It was neither hell nor heaven, but somewhere between, a private purgatory, a paradise in black and gray. This was death's realm, reserved for the chosen few who seeked him. I returned to Wakefield. The guard waited for me to return with his ultimate relic, but I never did. I found it amusing to watch his sanity gradually slip. I eventually killed him, along with Baron. The guard's occult collection proved useful in locating further devotees of death, cementing my position as a member of the Nile cult. I was assured that neither Baron nor the guard would be granted access to Nile. They would simply pass out of existence, never to lust or desire again. I'm afraid I can't reveal my name nor the exact whereabouts of Logslow Cemetery, Just know that I exist in your world, yet I live in Nile, death's realm. I have no choice but to continue to walk the earth, undead yet unliving, seeking death more with each passing day. I hope you enjoyed now by Joe Turner, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got a second story for you. This one from an anonymous author, edited by Craig Groshick. In it, a New Yorker has taken up the hobby of people-watching to pass the time. When he notices someone a bit more unusual than normal one day, however, his thirst for knowledge sends him down a path few have walked before. Without further ado, I present to you, The Strangers. My name is Andrew Ericks. I used to live in a city you probably heard of called New York. My mother is Terry Ericks. Teresa, really. She's in the phone book under E, if they even have those things anymore. Maybe you can just Google her. I don't know. If you know the city and you read this, find her. Please, don't show her this, but do me a favor and tell her I love her and let her know that I'm trying to come home. Really. It all started around the time I turned 25. I decided, for no good reason, that it was time for me to give up taking a backpack to work. Idiotically, I thought that it would make me look more like the guys I saw in the trains. You know, the ones the women are with the guys who made it. I figured that if I weren't lugging around a ridiculous-looking book bag everywhere like some brain-dead kid, I'd be seen as a more mature guy because I wouldn't look, uh, you know, stupid. Yeah, right, I I know. But that meant that I had to give up reading on the subway going to and from work. See, I'd get a seat because I got on early, then hide a book under the pack in such a way that it's peeking out just enough for me to see it. because you know, who wants to get jumped for reading? And like hell I was going to wear a messenger bag. Please. You're joking, right? For a while I had an MP3 player I got from my mom, and that helped pass the time for a while, and I could even put books on it from the library. It was perfect, because no one can tell what you're listening to. "'If you nod your head every once in a while, they think it's music. "'But I dropped a thing getting off the train "'in one of those shoving, let-me-off-at-a-damn-train fits. "'Ever since then, it's been shutting down at the end of every song "'if I don't tap it to skip to the next track. "'So I give that up, too. "'Instead, every morning on my way in, "'I'd sit on the endless A-train with nothing to do "'but watch the other passengers.' I was relatively shy serious. I talk like I'm not, but I really am. See, I didn't want to be caught looking or even looking like I was looking. Instead, I watched people from the corner of my eye. I figured out pretty fast that I wasn't the only person in the world who wasn't totally comfortable out in public. Different people hid it in different ways, but I could see through them. I made groups for them in my head, First, there were the fidgeters, who couldn't get comfortable, always moving their hands, shifting their weight, and edging their legs close to their seat, and then away. They're the most nervous types. After them, second, we have the fake sleepers, who would take a seat and practically close their eyes in the same moment. Lots of them were rich white kids who did this to avoid giving a seat to a pregnant woman or an older person. When I saw them, I gave up my seat right away because most of those guys weren't really sleeping at all and I'd really try hard to get close and accidentally kick their shoe or something. Then I'd be all like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to wake you, right? Anyway, the real sleepers, my third group, shifted more suddenly whenever we stopped or they were startled by loud noises. The fakes just zoned out the second they sat down Until the moment they reached their stop, at which point they'd hop up, peppy and alert, and jump off. I didn't like them much. What do you ask? Then comes the fourth group, MP3 player addicts. The one people would probably lump me into if they had watched me in my earlier days. The people in this group were related to the fifth group, the occasional laptop losers. And those in the sixth were ordinary people. The ones who traveled in groups and talked too loudly. So, you know, New Yorkers. I cracked myself up. Anyway, right around when people watching was getting very same old, same old, I had my first surprise. A middle-aged white man with brown hair, completely average looks, and casual Friday clothing. Dockers, business-friendly sweater. You know the type. He was so normal, he was almost too normal. Know what I mean? He had nothing special about him, no funky hand movements, didn't weird laugh or anything. It was as if he'd been designed by one of those cop shows to fake you out, like he was born to melt into a crowd. And that's why I noticed him. Here I was, purposely trying to see how people acted on a train so I could categorize them, and he didn't act at all. Didn't react, either. It was like seeing someone sitting in front of a television watching a documentary about, I don't know, something really boring, like fish. The guy watching isn't excited or focused, but he's not looking away, either. Present, but not accounted for. Anyway, I'm not that good at being punctual, my mom says. Said. So I didn't get on the train at exactly the same time every day. And since I didn't care one way or the other, I didn't try to sit in the same car either. Random was fine with me. So I was more than a month into my people-watching and grouping experiment before he caught my eye. That normal guy I just told you about. I saw him for the first time on a Monday, I think. Yeah, it was definitely a Monday, because... I know I saw him the second time on a Thursday when I was heading home to hang with the same crew I've hung with every Thursday night since we were all in school together. Mr. Normal Guy. Well, he obviously did catch the same train, and he sat in the same car, the first car, and same seat, even. Talk about obsessive-compulsive. At least that's what I thought at the time. What I should have been thinking, however, was, Crap, that is not normal. Since he'd caught my attention so well the first time I saw him, I watched him even more closely the next time. Frankly, something about him made me really uncomfortable. Mind you, he didn't do anything to make me feel like that. He didn't do anything at all, really. What creeped me out, maybe, was how much he was trying not to be there. The way he sat there in silence, staring straight ahead, with a blank expression on his face, no matter what happened, was unnerving. Once, a woman with a crying kid entered the car and sat right next to him. Still nothing. He didn't do so much as turn his head or stare the kid down. And that little punk was seriously loud, too. By the time the subway reached my stop that Thursday, I felt sick queasy sick, and when I left the car my hands were shaking like I was in the throes of nicotine withdrawal. The man was wrong. He was some kind of freak, a sociopath perhaps, one of those quiet guys who, as it turns out later, has a dozen women's heads in his freezer, the first victim likely his own mother. I'm telling you all this, so it'll make sense why the next part is so weird. Because he freaked me out. So you'd think I would do everything I could to stay away, right? Yeah, I would have thought that too. In my early days, he was just part of my grouping experiment, and not a particularly interesting one of that. At least, I had convinced myself of that. But it wasn't long before I'd noticed... I'd been wasting time after work in the afternoons, poking around the newsstand, reading magazines I didn't want, until the clerk chased me away for loitering. Unconsciously, I was doing my best to stay off that guy's train, and if I found myself on the platform at the wrong time, his time, I made damn sure to choose the last car, the one as far away from his as possible. The opposite of obsession, right? fine. Then, on my way to work one morning, I saw another person who set off the same warning bells in my head. This time, it was a woman in the last car, just as plain-looking and just as out of place in all the hustle and bustle around her. The moment I saw that she was in his category, I only realized it later when I had lots of time to think about it, you understand, well, That moment was when my obsession officially began. All of my people watching, which had begun as a way to keep myself from dying of boredom, became a religion to me. I couldn't set foot on a subway platform or ride a bus without examining everyone and filling out a mental checklist in my head. Plain clothes, solid colors. No brands? Check. Expressionless, no casual glances. Out the windows or towards other passengers? Check. No bags, purses, or accessories? Check, check, check. We've got another. I started calling them the strangers. Like any other convert, I loved that connection. Finding my next stranger fix was my ritual. I didn't see them every day, even after I started taking the subway more than I needed to. But they were there often enough. Seeing one would set me on edge, make my palms sweaty, and my throat dry. I know that sounds like a bad thing, but like I said, I was obsessed. Even though they didn't pay any attention to me, they never looked at me or made eye contact, treating me as if I was invisible. I still felt like I was totally exposed in their presence, a flashing neon sign in the midst of Times Square, as it were. I could see them, plain as day. How could they be so oblivious of me? But well, they never noticed me, not in any way that I could tell, and when my curiosity finally gave my fear a beatdown, I decided to follow one of them. I thought I should go back to my first, the man on the afternoon train who always chose the same seat in the same car. I imagined he'd be easy to find, So I went to a likely platform and waited, watching for him in the windows of the front cars that pulled in. And eventually, there he was. I got on and took a seat diagonally across from him, doing my best to look inconspicuous. We rode until the end of the line, and he got up and walked out before I did. Keeping a reasonable distance between us, I tailed him, but it wasn't much of a trick. "'He didn't even leave the platform. "'He took a seat on one of the cleaner wooden benches, "'as expressionless as always, "'and I went behind one of the big map boards "'and waited, trying to look blasé. "'After a few moments, the next downtown train arrived "'and I watched him get in and take the same seat. "'I didn't have the courage to follow him again. "'He hadn't gone anywhere.' He just rode to the end of the line, and then... What? Rode back? What possible reason would he... Would anyone... Have for doing that? It nagged me, long after I'd taken the next downtown back home. I tried to get some rest, but I couldn't look, Not until I could make some sense of him. I was beyond confused. I was angry. Why was this jackass, this inhumanly silent and still bastard, riding trains back and forth and going nowhere. It bothered me, but not the way a guy who unapologetically slams into you on the street without looking twice does. It looked me the way spiders do. Big, hairy, train-riding, freak spider guy. Makes me want to get the hell away from him. That was how the strangers were beginning to look to me. They made my eyes water. Mouth dry. But did that stop me? Hell no. Of course not. Desperate to satisfy my curiosity, I followed him again the next day, and again the day after that, every day for at least a week. The two of us made our silent trips together, though only I noticed. By the end of the week, I was following him for hours, all day, every day, all night, well past the time the train started running night expresses and passing stations, like my stop, in parts of town that shut down for the night. We rode from the east end of the city's system down, around, and up to the top, then back again. I wasn't people-watching any longer. I was person-watching, stranger-watching. I didn't see anyone else on those trains I rode that week. We could have been the only two people on the planet for all I knew or cared. I lost my job after that. My manager was nice about it, but didn't leave any room to beg. I'd lost my concentration, my focus. I'd become totally unproductive. It was actually kind of a heartfelt speech, to be honest. He'd been a nice guy, but you know what? As as distracted as I was, I can barely remember him or the words that came out of his mouth during the talk. All I could think about while he was speaking was my new work, my responsibility, my my vigil. What would that man, that thing, on the subway get up to when I wasn't there to keep my eye on him? How would we all survive without me watching? I left work for the last time at noon that day. Normally, I'd have started tailing my subject at 5.30, But I knew, I just knew, that he'd be waiting for me. I wish now that I'd paid more attention to that day. Was it sunny? It was summer, after all. When did it start feeling like he knew when I'd be there? I wonder, because that was the last day I could have walked around downtown, my last chance to have had a beer or two at that joint with the cream-colored menus and the tables on the sidewalk. I could have sat there, checking out the girls walking by in their summer dresses. Or would that place make me drink wine? Whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is, I could have had a good time, gone home, and put all this insanity out of my head. I could have looked for a new job and started reading again. Instead, I waited for a train. Many trains are on the tracks at any given time in the city that never sleeps. So I sat in the station for at least an hour until I scored. There he was, finally, framed in his first car window as his train pulled in. I waited for the exiting crowd to thin, then shoved past the stragglers and noticed, surprised that my skin wasn't clammy, my hands weren't shaking, and my heart wasn't pounding. I sat, for the first time, right across from him, directly in his line of sight, and watched for him to make a change, any change. Eyes, mouth. Hell, if one of the hairs on his head had moved, that would have been something. But no, no change, no anything. Did he recognize me? If he did, I couldn't tell, and I was looking hard. We had to be a strange pair, sitting across from each other that afternoon, staring at and into one another, because this time he had to look at me. I'm sure my face said plenty. I couldn't believe I was able to keep as still and as expressionless as he was, because inside I was screaming. React to me, you freak! See me, damn it, because I sure as hell can see you, you spider-brained bastard. But I didn't scream, and he didn't answer. Not during the first trip uptown, or the second one down, or the third, or the tenth. We rode into the night together, and at the end of each line, we got out and waited. This time, I didn't play. I mimicked him exactly sitting right beside him on the bench and staring straight ahead, but always watching him from my peripherals. And still, nothing. At last, we made our final trip together. That day, I felt untouchable. I was downright smug, so certain I had him and that he knew it. The conductor, mostly understandable on the speaker announced this would be the train's last run for the night. He'd be switching to a different train when we reached the last stop, and the engine and car I found myself in would retire for maintenance. So here it was now, officially, the last trip of the night. I'm not too proud to tell you that I'd always let him get away from me before this point, when it was this late. The end of the line is a long way from my home, And if the trains go slow this time of night, the buses are flat out worse than waiting for Santa's sleigh to show up and take you home in July. But this time I thought, what the hell? I'd follow him and finally get a look at where he was, what he was, when the trains stopped running. Maybe this time I'd get some answers. The subway rolled on towards the end and my stomach rolled with it. A car emptied like coffee through a filter until it was just us, two silent watchers beneath the city. I fought to keep a crazy grin off my face while the subway slowed to a crawl and then stopped. The doors opened to no one. The end of the line. The stranger didn't move, didn't react at all. The car stood still, doors open. "'I could hear a few stragglers faintly far down the platform "'making their way out of the station, "'their footsteps echoing in the silence. "'Nothing. "'The speaker system crackled in a half-assed attempt "'to let any sleeping riders know "'that we'd gone as far as we could go. "'Still nothing. "'And then I heard footsteps again, "'a conductor perhaps popping his head into each car "'to make sure it was empty before he took the train to wherever the hell it goes for the night. No matter what I heard, however, I wasn't about to take my eyes off my captive. I paid attention to the conductor when he finally reached our car while still staring down the stranger. The conductor looked in, his eyes scanned over us, and then he looked confused. like he'd forgotten a phone number he'd known his whole life. He blinked a few times and paused I waited for him to say something but the moment stretched out spinning slowly in a track breeze Then with a slight shake of the head he walked toward the conductor's door keyed it open and left us in the main car A few minutes later the train started up again We rode straight off underground for a while then felt like the train looped around and stopped. I could see the windows of more trains behind my motionless companion, and through those trains' windows? More trains. And then, while I was trying to calculate my next step, he smiled at me. It was nothing more than a slight curl of the lip, but I'd noticed. I probably wouldn't have if it hadn't been that I spent the last God-knows-how-many-hours studying his face. A smile's normal, right? Sometimes, as it turns out, it's not. So, the stranger said in a rough baritone, here we are. I tried to respond, but couldn't. My throat had clamped shut. I was incredulous. I'd been waiting for what felt like my whole life for this, and yet I'd been rendered speechless. The entire tunnel system we were in felt as if it had just collapsed onto me. I coughed and stammered and finally managed in a rasping tone to ask the question that kept me up at night, the one which drove me halfway to madness and led me to this place in this moment. What are you? He ignored me and stood. The train doors opened and he started walking. A moment later he turned and stared straight into me again. Coming, he called. He didn't wait for an answer, but stepped out onto the platform. I scrambled out after him, finding words difficult to come by... And immediately wished I had brought a bottle of water. Come on, damn it, I finally shouted, then tripped on the uneven platform. He ignored me and continued walking. Talk to me, I hollered while I picked myself up. Who are you? What are you? Why do you ride the trains all day? He didn't look back or slow his step. I couldn't see his face as I recovered my balance, but I'm willing to bet he didn't react at all, or at least no more than he had in response to anything else. I stalked him, shouting until I realized the futility of my actions, and I gave up. Five words were all I was going to get out of him, it seemed. In spite of a growing sense of unease, I was overwhelmed with curiosity. I'd come all this way, and I wasn't about to leave without an explanation. And so I traversed the platform until we came to an odd junction of sorts, unlike any I'd ever seen in the New York City subway system before. Trains lined both sides of the platform that appeared to stretch into infinity. This place was even spookier than the old ghost platform, I was lucky enough to glimpse in a dim tunnel years ago on a quiet early morning when my train was rerouted. Suddenly, the stranger turned. We had been walking perpendicular to the trains around us, passing nose after nose of the hulking vehicles, their headlights seemingly glaring at us as we passed. The path ahead was lit from above, but I couldn't see where it ended. Innumerable trains on either side of us went on forever, so far as I could tell. Far too many trains to service one city, I realized, even one as densely populated as New York. No one needed this many trains. It wouldn't have changed anything, I know, but I probably should have paid more attention to that at the time. I'm not sure how long we walked. I had a watch once, but it broke, and I never replaced it kind of like the MP3 player, now that I think about it. Go figure. Pathetically, I took out my cell phone at one point, but as expected, I had no signal. The stranger stopped every now and then and looked at a subway car for long enough to get me jumpy, but then he'd pass on. I'd stand there looking at the train he'd paid so much attention to, seeing nothing out of the ordinary about it at all. Finally after who knows how long I saw what he saw the trains weren't all the same we walked past tons that were similar and then we'd come upon a different model even in the gloom it was easy to tell when they were a little larger or smaller or that they had a different curve to their nose different siding or different doors the conductor's cabins were a little different as well I didn't see, and still don't know, exactly what the stranger was looking for, what he was waiting for the trains to tell him, but he must have found it because zip! There he went, turning down a platform, and the train's doors opened as soon as he stepped in front of them. I followed closely behind, and we took our usual seats in the darkened car. Are you willing to speak now? I asked him no answer. I sighed with frustration and seriously began weighing the pros and cons of punching him in the face when the lights in the car came on and the engine started. What the hell? I said. When he locked eyes with me then, he actually looked sad. Then he offered six more words that changed everything. You can't go back, you know. What the hell are you talking about, I retorted. Go back where? The stonewalling bastard just sat there, ignoring me. Our train lurched, pushing off in the opposite direction from what I expected. The Macy's Day never-ending parade of trains had thrown off my sense of direction, I guessed. We rolled on for a few minutes, then slowed as we approached a stop. His gaze vacant since the train started moving, grew sharper. For the first time, I got the sense that he was finally staring at me, rather than just staring in the direction I happened to be in. Be still. Be silent, he said. Don't catch their attention. The train stopped, the doors opened, and they began to flood in. I don't know what I noticed first. The weird clothes, the two long arms with hands nearly brushing the floor, the jet-black eyes set deep into angular faces or their blue-gray skin. My eyes saw it, but my brain refused to process it. When my mind could no longer ignore the horrors right in front of me, it was all I could do to stymie the shriek, which threatened to tear its way out of my throat. My frantic heart felt like it was going to explode out of my chest. Like a strummed bass string, everything in me lurched and throbbed with the rolling spasm of horror. My head grew dizzy, my eyes fogged over, which I was thankful for, and I felt bile rising in the back of my throat. Following the stranger's instructions, I kept my mouth clenched shut, forcing me to swallow it back down, managing only because the other option was much worse. My instincts screamed his words at me. Be still. Be silent. Don't catch their attention. The rest of the day was a blur. We rode the subway car up and down the line, both still, both expressionless, for hours. For days, maybe. It seemed longer than the route I knew, the line I'd followed the stranger on for so long. The hideous things around us seemed to pay us no mind, though I, at least, must have stood out like a nun at a heavy metal concert. When we finally returned, alone at the endless cavern of trains, I burst into tears in our blessedly empty car and collapsed to the floor, exhausted and sobbed for a long time. The stranger simply watched. When my breathing had returned somewhat to normal, I managed to croak. Take me home, please. I can't, he said bluntly. I don't know which one of these would lead you back, if any of them do. He stood, the doors opened again, and he stepped out once again onto the platform. I fought the urge to whimper like an abused puppy and followed him. He spun around, eyes glinting. You've followed me long enough. What? I shouted, fury overshadowing my misery. Rushing forward, I grabbed the stranger by the shoulders and with an unexpected burst of strength slammed him up against the side of the nearest train car. You son of a bitch! What the hell did you get me into? What did you do to me? I smashed him against the metal walls again and again. Take me back! I screamed. Like a candle deprived of oxygen, the sight of his eyes returning once more to their usual Emotionless state extinguished the rage in me, and I felt my anger peter out, leaving me hollow. Please, I begged again. Please, take me home. It's not how it works, he said. Go your own way. Be still and be subtle, and they'll think you're one of theirs. One of their what? I demanded. He peered down at his hands in silence. "'How could you do this to me?' I cried. "'Why?' He cast me a melancholy glance. "'You'll do it, too. Sometimes you get stuck.' He brushed my hands off his shoulders and turned to walk away. Devastated, I fell to my knees. He turned back to me one final time. "'I'm sorry.' he said, and touched his finger to my forehead. That's the last thing I remember. I don't know what he did to me or why. When I came to, I knew my role and played it to the best of my ability. I was still. I was silent. And I rode to the end of the lines no matter who or what got on. Being still was as good as being invisible, but once in a while I caught a reflection in a train window. The first hundred times it happened, I didn't catch on. But eventually even I understood. The longer I rode with the things, the more I became like them. I was stuck in their world until someone started watching me. Then, if they followed, and only then, I had a chance of getting back to the endless platform of lost trains. In the time I spent ensnared into that place, I did some terrible things. Things I'm not proud of to the other strangers. But I'd made my choice. I was not going to lure anyone else into their trap. Not even if it got me home faster. They were better off dead than being in whatever state I was. It makes me wonder, though, about the stranger who got me into this situation. I wonder what he originally looked like and whether he knew he could have killed me or gotten me to the hub that way. I wonder, too, about the others I saw back home and the rare few I've come across since I left. Do they kill them or take them? And whichever one they choose, do they consider it a mercy? I can't bring myself to talk to them, to ask. We're damned either way, and the damned ought to suffer in silence. I've killed fifteen strangers now, and I've got very good at it. But I've made a decision. I'm done killing. Innocence, at least. Before I returned to the Central Hub this last time, I scrounged as much paper as I could, and I wrote this story over and over again to be left in as many subway cars as I could imagine. Thousands of messages in bottles cast into a sea of steel rails. The tale is a request. It's also a warning. My request, remember, was that you find my mother and tell her a lie. It's a white lie, don't worry. You have to find her, then, tell her that I love her, and that I'm trying to come home. It may give her some hope, or peace, or something. And oh, how I wish it were true. But here's the thing. I've been thinking I'm similar to the character we read about in school when the teacher tried to get us all jazzed about mythology. Did you ever read the Odysseus, Lost and Drifting Upon the Sea, looking to return home to something and some place familiar? That's me, struggling to find my way. But that's where the similarities end, I'm afraid. Because I'm not lost at sea. I'm lost in endless tunnels, a labyrinth of sorts. The distinction is important because labyrinths are designed. They're built intentionally. And just like in those old legends about Theseus, it's about the same here. Someone or something made this impossible place, and they're going to pay for what they've done to me. The rules of this place have transformed me from what I once was into something else entirely, something horribly inhuman, and then into something else again. They've created a monster. And if that's what they expect, I'll be their minotaur in this labyrinth. And if I can, I'll tear it down around me and take the ones that built it along for the ride. They have no idea who they're dealing with. They should never have messed with a New Yorker. My warning because I'm trying to be a good Samaritan here with my balled-up stories scribbled on dirty paper, is that you should stay as far away as possible, even in public places, from silent, expressionless people. Just keep your distance. They may kill you or something far worse. If you see them, run far and run fast. And even more importantly, I beg you, do not ride any train to the end of the line. That ride might just be your last. Or it might just last forever.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well.
2: I hope you enjoyed The Strangers by an anonymous author, as edited by Craig Groshick, and performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me tonight for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, or Twitter, or Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyre channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Gyre. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Chieri. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Javi channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at... Otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review in a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs-up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway?